everyone. I'm Melody Maraca. And I'm Bill C. Welcome back to the Into the Heart of U2 podcast, where two longtime fans discuss U2 music album by album and tour by tour, the fan experience and the perception of U2 and cultural consciousness. Yeah, and hopefully by now you know why we're here. As we sit here in 2023, we still care about this band, but we're concerned about their legacy. So as we take a trip back through the catalog, we're going to try and get to the bottom of whether U2 is one of the greats of all time, or are the haters right after all? So Melody. Yes, Bill. We've been looking forward to this episode. This is uh, pretty much where we both discovered U2, isn't it? It was indeed. So tell everyone what we're going to be talking about here today. Well... We're going to be talking about the birth of U2's difficult second album, October. The one they seem uncomfortable and even a bit embarrassed about to talk about even today. We're going to look at the external and internal pressures that created such an unusual rock and roll album. The critical reaction to October, the tour, and where the band was moving forward. I know I'm excited. So, I think anyone listening to this podcast knows that October is notorious for three things. Number one, Bono's briefcase, supposedly containing the lyrics for the next album, was stolen backstage in Portland on the boy tour. Point number two, October was written and recorded under great duress. And number three, the lyrics are heavily Christian. Okay, so to point number one. Let's separate the fact from myth here. Uh, when the contents of the briefcase were returned to Bono back in uh, 2004, there weren't any lyrics in them, um, just some song titles, stage direction, and some other scribblings, but definitely not the lyrics to the next album. Sorry, Bono. Not true. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so point number two, when the band returns from the boy tour in June 1981, Island Records was practically waiting on the tarmac at Shannon Airport, pointing at their watches, demanding another record out by the fall. One problem, they practically had no songs. Right. So then they have two months to come up with the rest of the material for the album, which we know they failed to do, or at least Bono fails big time to get the lyrics together. So a band who are still far from masters of their instruments need to wing it in the studio and get the job done before they all go broke. Exactly. And finally, point number three, the heavy Christian lyrics. But the question is why and why now on October? Because Melody, the lyrics on Boy, other than maybe I Will Follow, were pretty much devoid of any Christian message, despite the fact that already Bono, Edge, and Larry are born-again Christians, and were already part of the Shalom Fellowship, which most U2 fans know is the youth ministry in Dublin, born out of what is called charismatic renewal. And Melody, I'm going to turn it over to you now to explain that. Well, before we discuss what's going on specifically within U2, I think it might help to set the stage and look at what's going on in Ireland, religiously speaking, at the time. Northern Ireland is, it's in the early 1980s, and it's smack in the middle of the Troubles. And it's easy to imagine that the images of people, neighbors, killing other neighbors in the name of God is the subtext to daily life, even in Dublin. And during this time in the south of Ireland, people who affiliate with the Catholic Church begins to drop. Uh, don't get me wrong, the Republic of Ireland was and still is an extremely Catholic country, but Catholicism begins to trend slightly downward. What is on the rise are people who identify as agnostics or those with no religion, which of course isn't surprising. Um, but 
What is also on the rise are Christian charismatic groups. So I can easily imagine that people who are interested in expressing a faith in God, who want to feel the divine without the sectarian divide, would be drawn to these types of groups. Now, Shalom was a non-denominational group, which I imagine would have appealed to you too, as they were different Christian factions themselves. So here we have Bono, Edge, and Larry, who are committed Christians, who are trying to live their Christian faith in the big, bad world of rock and roll. And this was something that they clearly took very seriously, and they truly tried to live by the Christian creed, be in the world, but not of the world. Um, while being in a rock band. And I think I think it's this crisis um, that gives us the lyrics that we hear on October. Let me read you a quote from Steve Lillywhite. He said, you two could have gone two ways after boy. They could have broken out and gone bigger. But in fact, what they did was they shrunk a little bit. They were a little bit scared of the world, I think. And October is probably a reflection of them going inside themselves. Um, well, you know, I mean, they may have shrunk commercially on October, which we'll get to in a bit, but I don't think the focus on faith is necessarily a regression or being in a state of fear of the world. What I think, which I mentioned earlier, is that lyrically, Bono is expressing the conundrum of trying to hold to deeply held religious beliefs while trying to live in the world of rock and roll with all its debaucherousness. What we do know is that on the boy tour, the believers in the band, they're holding Bible study on the bus, while Adam, Paul McGinnis, and the rest of the crew want to live in rock and roll lifestyle, which sets up two factions within the band. Right. I mean, we also know that during the boy tour, the believers, as it were, reacted to some of the more hedonistic sides of the rock and roll circus in curious ways. I mean, Melody, you were reminding me of a funny story on the boy tour where they were actually booked at a Dallas club where they uh, their opening act was a wet T-shirt contest. And instead of doing what rock and rollers are want to do, they tried to cover up the contestants and tried to save them. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I do remember it as quite a sweet story of these upstanding young men who weren't going to treat women as sex objects, but rather they were going to talk to them about God to save them. Um, obviously, the story is a little bit problematic. It kind of uh, gets rid of the women's agency. But I do think that it was coming from a place of innocence and it was pretty well intentioned. I want to read a rather extraordinary letter Bono wrote to his dad sometime during the boy tour. You ready? I was literally for a minute thinking, how do I sound like Bono? Let's not do that. <laughs> All right. Yeah, that might not be a good idea. All right, here we go. All right, here we go. You should be aware that at the moment, three of the group are committed Christians. That means offering each day up to God, meeting in the morning for prayers, readings, and letting God work in our lives. This gives us our strength and a joy that does not depend on drink or drugs. This strength will, I believe, be the quality that will take us up to the top of the music business. I hope our lives will be a testament to the people who follow us and to the music business, where never before have so many lost and sorrowful people gathered in one place pretending they're having a good time. It is our ambition to make more than good music. Yeah, so I'm struck by the defensiveness and justification here. I mean, it makes sense Bono would write a letter like this in a classic, you know, son trying to convince his father he's not wasting his life kind of way. 
But given what we know about the kind of pressure Shalom was increasingly putting on the band to reconcile being in a rock and roll band while serving God, this letter could just as easily have been addressed to them, or it's as much a letter Bono was writing to himself. What do you think? Well, I mean, I think all those things are possible. Um, and, you know, I'm sure that some of his justification was a reaction to people that thought he was crazy for wanting to live this devout Christian lifestyle when he could have been enjoying worldly pleasures. And, I mean, this is something that often gets lobbed at people who are trying to live a strong faith. Um, but, you know, <laughs> it's also very Bono. I mean, he's a preachy kind of a dude, right? Um, <laughs> even when he isn't talking about God. Bono? Preachy? Come now. <laughs> All right, Melody, let's get down to it. It was not an easy birth, but you two release October on October 12th, 1981, just under a year after Boy. There's no question the album sounds a little half-baked, and it certainly didn't have the steely vision of Boy. For that, it suffers. But there's some remarkable music here, and if you're ready, let's dive in. Let's do it. Gloria, yeah. This song will always have a special place in my heart. Um, when I first heard it, I was a young Christian. Um, and full disclosure, which I think is important, particularly because we're talking about the October record, I still am a Christian. Um, Thank you, know, you for sharing that, Melody. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. All right. Um, you know, for me, though, on a personal level, what made this song particularly important is I was going through my own crisis of faith at the time when I heard it. And it was something that um, was a companion to me through that time. And, and I, I love, I still love that so the song because of it. Um, but in thinking back, you know, my impression was I was very shocked when I heard the song. Um, as a Christian, I understood what a lot of it was about. I got a lot of the illusions that were on the song, um, but there it was, it was being played on MTV. It was on secular radio and it kind of felt like you two had gotten away with something like, um, I don't know, they were flying below the radar. Um, and I can just remember thinking, how in the world these guys pulled this off? And there was some confusion, I think, in the Christian community about you two. And I can remember talking to other Christians about it. And, you know, um, who who were these guys? I mean, if you weren't a diehard U2 fan, and you hadn't read every article, you didn't know. Were they a Christian band? What what was going on? Right, right. Um... So preparing for this podcast, you know, Melody, you and I went back and tried to listen through the catalog with, you know, fresh ears. And, you know, it dawned on me, um, every U2 album is a reaction to the last. Um, and they make that clear in the opening track, what that is. On Boy, I Will Follow, musically, it's a clarion call for what would come next. Um, lyrically, it's the holding on to innocence as impending adulthood looms and then october speaks to a need to turn to one's faith and live by that creed after entering adulthood and its worldly elements um and from the opening count off of gloria to that stirring sing-along on the outro which would sound not out of place in a soccer stadium 
This is big music to fill big places. And where some bands had to get good at playing bigger venues, U2 was making music for stadiums when they could barely even fill a pub. Mm. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I mean, the, the song, it's huge. It's yeah. jubilant. It's almost operatic at the end. And, and you mentioned that the song is about turning to one's faith. I, I would go a, just a little step further and say the song, it's really, it's a hymn. You know, right. it, it's about not being able to find yourself or find your voice without God. Um, it's about being ineffectual without God. Yeah. I mean, lyrically, I mean, it's an abandonment of language, isn't it? Mm. Um, it, it's trying to say what can't be expressed. I mean, what's the phrase? The spirit groans rather than speaks to the point where it's an abandonment of the English language itself on the chorus. Right. I mean, it's, it's almost, uh, speaking in tongues, right? Yeah. We're, we're going into Latin. The Bono sings Gloria in te Domine, Gloria exalta te, which, um, uh, roughly translates to glory in you, Lord, rejoice in glory. Um, and of course, this word rejoice, it becomes a theme on its own right um, throughout the album. But of course, we'll get to all that a little bit later. Right. You know, Melody, I, I have to laugh. You know, you'd mentioned it was the Gloria video, which was your you know, entry point to you two. Um, remember that first, like the OG MTV VJ Alan Hunter, the blonde one? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Okay. So I remember one time after they played the Gloria video, this is very early on, early MTV infancy. Uh, and he comes back on the air and he says, well, there's a girl's name that's been used more than a few times for a song. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, but as much as adult as that guy was, um, it does show that, you know, this is one of those songs on October that's relatable, whether you're a believer, whether you know the biblical references or not. I mean, we all understand the feeling, something so strong, we're unable to articulate it on any level. And that's not always the case on October, on October, but on Glory, at least, it really works. That and because it's just a great song mm. and, uh, you know, ends up making for a great opener on most of the October tour. Well, at least we're starting out in agreement here, Bill. And yes. That's a good thing. Yes, we're off to a great start here. <laughs> but can they sustain it? I don't let's, think so. <laughs> well, let's let's find out. What's up next? So up next we have I Fall Down. All right, let's give a listen. So that was I Fall Down. I like the promise of this song. I like Edge adding piano and acoustic guitar there for the first time. But it's one of those tunes, like several in October, that feels half-baked. And, um, you know, this, along with, I'd say, Stranger in a Strange Land, hinted a cool kind of push-forward musically from Boy, 
um, this kind of mid-tempo narrative storytelling, neither of which are, you know, at least for me, overwhelmed by the Christian message, um, which we can get to. But this song ultimately doesn't feel fleshed out. Um, and I feel like it had the band and notably Paul McGinnis, it just said to Island Records, wait a second, we need some more time to develop these songs. The album could have been special and been more balanced with pieces like this. Yeah. And, you know, I'll agree with you on this one. I don't know that we'll always agree yeah. on these songs on October, but I do agree with you. Um, and, you know, let's just let's look at the lyrics um, you mentioned. Yeah. It's it's they're sort of they're not all the way there. The, the lyrics, they're evocative. It's the sketch of this story, this couple, John and Julie. Um, but it it's more just the feelings, the associations of love, maybe a mutual dependence. Um, maybe it shares some of the same feeling with, I don't know, I will follow. Um, you know, I fall down when you fall down um, versus when you walk away, I will follow. That's kind of an, uh, an association. But having heard this song a million times, back in the day and having listened to it, maybe I'm getting a little too deep in here, but let me run something by you, Bill. Yeah, please. So do you think that it's possible that in these lyrics, there's the first allusion to Bono's mother? Uh, Let me, let me tell you what lines I'm talking about here. I'm talking about the lines. You're going to get better. You better not leave me here anyway. I want to get up when you wake up, but when I get up, I fall down. I mean, honestly, I have never gotten that, but um, I love that you did. <laughs> um, I, I'm not the first who I think read that the John and Julie are pod from the Lipton Village who wrote it on the boy tour and his girlfriend. Um, but, you know, who knows? <laughs> right. I, mean, I mean, it's I, not a linear story, right? No, so. not at all. Um, and that's okay. Um I do like the the verse, you know, Julie, wake up, Julie, tell the story, you wrote the letter, said you were going to get there someday, going to walk in the sun and the wind and the rain, never look back again. I mean, I, I like that. I, I wish it was more developed. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think the, the the song could have used a bridge or something, for instance. Um, yeah, because it's basically, ultimately, this, this song just doesn't feel like it goes anywhere. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. But it is sweet. Certainly yeah. is sweet. I, I do have to give Bono one one bit of props here. I do think his vocal delivery here, using the lower register and almost a conversational tone, I think that shows some growth, um, creates greater intimacy in the storytelling, um, something he develops later on War in the first verse of Drowning Man or 40, Promenade and MLK on Unforgettable Fire. You know, where he started to understand, you know, whisper could be as passionate as a scream. So I think this is a sign of growth here for sure. Sure. Um, yeah. So, you know, let you know, ready to move on? I am. So why don't we get to I threw a brick through a window? Cool.
So personally, I love this song and it has been my favorite um, on occasions from this record. Um, I, I think along with Gloria, I find it to be one of the more structurally complete songs. Uh, musically, I love the Tom, you know, particularly in the intro and the outro of the songs, which, you know, Bill, you and I were just talking about. I recently found out, I think you did as well, that it's not actually Larry that's playing that part. It's the edge, which it's, blew my mind. It's crushing. It is crushing. <laughs> <laughs> Larry, come on. Use a um, click track. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I also I love the heavy bass. And um, for early U2, this is a funky song. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that the groove, it works as a foil to the lyrical frustration that Bono is showing throughout the song. Um, I, I also think it's one of Bono's earliest, uh, strongest early melody lines. Um, I, I do, I feel that reach for the falsetto at the first, at the end of the first line of the chorus is super emotive, but it's also quite controlled. Yeah, I mean, listen, don't hate me. Uh, this is not a favorite of mine. <laughs> um, for me, a lot of ideas kind of crashing into each other. And for me, at least, it never achieves, you know, liftoff. Uh, for some reason, it stayed in the set list through the war tour and even a few times in the Unforgettable Fire tour. Uh, maybe I just got sick of it. Um, I concede it does sound big and made to be played live, especially with that no one, no one is blind, or, you know, bit that, that Bono seems to have literally written to exhort the crowd to sing along to. Um, but for me, this is another one that feels a little flat and actually undeveloped. So uh, maybe I don't know what I'm talking about, Melody. <laughs> maybe you don't. Um, <laughs> but no, I mean, what I get out of it, you know. Yeah. So um, here we have an album that's full of spiritual praise, um, you know, the stretches of human uh, failings that are overcome through godly resolutions. But this lyric, I think, is kind of a standout. It, it's quite a human lyric. Here we have this the singer full of doubt, frustrations. You know, almost there's a self-hatred going on. Um, I, I like how the lyric builds that frustration um, with the singer saying, I was talking to myself. I was walking into walls. I was talking in my sleep. All the communications are ineffectual, basically. Um, and that all comes to the head in the line that you just mentioned there. No one is blinder than he who will not see. No one is blinder than me. Um, and I think that's just really an interesting way of expressing that. Um, complete and utter failing to express oneself. I find it fascinating. The other thing that I, I think that I like about this song so much is the resolution, you know, that brotherhood is the only way out. I think it's quite a beautiful um, concept that he's discussing. Um, it's the only way that the singer can can leave the stage, right, of this pain. Um, and, you know, I have to tell you, so the, the image of brotherhood, that reminds me of my favorite story of the makings of October. Um, as we know, Bono was writing most of the lyrics on the mic, which I can't imagine. Well, I, I can't imagine how frustrating that experience 
must have been for him. And I'm sure from what we know about Bono, he wasn't always the uh, uh, the most gregarious and friendly dude um, in the best of times. I can imagine what he was like during this period. Um, so I'm sure that Edge and Larry, they went off, they got a cup of coffee, they got a beer, they went to sleep <laughs> during these periods. But it was Adam, Adam who stayed with Bono in the control room through the entire recording process. And I just think that's, I mean, really, it's just this amazing display of brotherhood. I love that story about him. I I love that story too. Um, and, you know, Adam is, uh, you know, Adam is, a, he's a gentleman, isn't he? he is <laughs> a, toler- a tolerant gentleman <laughs> of his, of his uh, <laughs> souls on fire uh, bandmates. <laughs> um, so the next one is called Rejoice. Yeah, for me, things get back on course here. One of the more thrilling tracks and one that gets the intent of the record back into focus. Um, Bono has conceded the songs of October are not refined or even complete, but argues they have something that could be more important, which is desperation, and they capture the first phase of the band's life. He said, the clear eyes of the innocent and the zealotry to remain unworldly which is a remarkable bit of insight and a telling confession. Um, so on Gloria, for instance, Bono declares devotion to God. On Rejoice, he openly asks what it is God asks of him. What am I to do? What am I supposed to say? I can't change the world, but I can change the world in me if I rejoice. Yeah, you know, I I do love this song. And you mentioned earlier um, when we were talking about I Threw a Brick Through a Window, um, Edge's soaring guitar work throughout the album. And I think here on this song, you find Edge's uncanny uncanny power to translate emotion to his guitar parts on full display. Um, I love the interchange between he he and Bono on this album as well. I think they work so well together. Um, And lyrically, you know, it's interesting to be, we enter the song in a world where um, the sky is falling, buildings are falling, there's uncontrollable chaos, um, you know, and and the resolution is everything that, that you do in the face of chaos is to rejoice. That's what, that's your action is to rejoice. And I've always felt that that was kind of wild to make that leap. Right. And like we've talked before, Bono is taken in rapture and lost in the moment and we have these bongolese sort of lyrics this is this is a very exact moment he's sharing a choice that he's making um derived from his faith but it is it is a choice it's not random he he's 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 he finds his mantra i can't change the world but i can change the world in me um strong really strong stuff um 
you know, I have, I have a, I have another theory. Yes. Another theory about the lyrics here. So what do you think? Yes. Um, so the lyrics are this morning I fell out of bed when I woke up to what he said. Everything's crazy, but I'm too lazy to lie. My first question is, who do you think he is? You tell me. <laughs> I don't know. Because uh, I, I don't know, know either. <laughs> <laughs> but it's I don't a bit know, of an enigma. <laughs> but it is. But here's here's my theory. Is this, could this possibly be Bono's father telling him? about his mother's death because here again we have these images of sleep and wakefulness which um happen in oct in tomorrow which we definitely know are about mother's past his his mother's passing could this possibly be another allusion to it i don't know but it's and if you but if you ask bono it would be the first time his dad ever mentioned his mom's death so there's that <laughs> well <laughs> I, what I want to know is uh, the 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 verse that's it's falling, it's falling outside a building, comes tumbling down, and inside a child on the ground says he'll do it again. Who's the child? Is it Bono? You, you were saying you think it's Bono. It could be. I I wondered if it's I, I wondered if it's IRA. Could be. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I think we agree on on. We've come to a consensus. We we like rejoice. We like rejoice. Yes. So what what do we got? We got two. We agree on <laughs> a split vote and an agreed upon meh. Yeah, yeah. And now and now we come to fire. So we'll see where we are on that one. Let's hear it. So this song, it begins its life um, uh, on the boy sessions, actually, and it was formerly known as Saturday Night. Uh, musically, those two songs share a lot, but lyrically, it was completely overhauled. Um, the original lyrics, I think, they they sort of harken back to um, the themes that you hear on boy, particularly on Another Time, Another Place, maybe on Caught Dub. As the, the lyrics aren't, they're not particularly a standout, but... Um, at the end of that song, there are these two lines, the couplet, can you soar any higher if you can't let go? To save her in the fire, she won't say no. And th those lines share a lot with the chorus that does become fire. I think that's how the Bono ends up structuring the chorus for fire. I think he likes the way that word sounds, and I think he likes the OO that he um, is using in that song. And later, they had to literally take fire away from him uh, lyrically. He was not allowed to use that word anymore. Just, just saying. <laughs> uh, but anyway, what's your take, uh, Bill? <laughs> well, okay. So you say you know they 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 repurpose these lyrics, and you know during the boy tour they get a break and they go to Chris Blackwell's studio in Barbados. Uh, and record it, and, and it becomes a single July 81 as a lead-up or a stopgap to October. Has the distinction of being the first single to crack the UK Top 40 before stalling out at number 35. In any case, for me, Melody, I'm sorry, the song meanders musically. It feels gimmicky with those falling, falling that gets repeated ad nauseum. Um, lyrically, I'm sorry, it feels trite and aimless <laughs> and obviously i'm missing something deeper which you'll share in a moment but it just it feels like this in the closing track is that all for me or two of the most 
meaningless sets of lyrics in the U2 canon. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, let me have it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I mean, Fire is not my favorite song um, on the album. I, I don't think that the lyrics are meaningless. And let, let me let me let me tell you why. Okay. Um, you know, he's really pulling um, a lot of these lyrics from the scripture, almost directly from the scripture. If you want to know, it's Revelations chapter 16. Um, and we're in the middle of the apocalypse, which... Wait, uh, let me, Melody, let me add the sound of rustling of pages as I look up the... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. I'll go further. Um, okay. I think that he's he's putting himself in the position of John, who writes the book of Revelations, who's an observer of the apocalypse. And I think that's what's really strange about this, this song, is the singer is just an an observer he's observing um the the sun turning black the moon turning red the the stars falling and, and these are all of course images that i'm talking about that are from that book in revelations um so well, melody it it sounds like he's observing him putting on john's shoes and becoming john right <laughs> I, mean, yeah, I don't i don't know i mean I don't I don't think of this one as the the messianic complex. And I know that Bono certainly does have that on occasion, but that's that's not my beef with this song. My beef with it is all this stuff is going on. The singer is just an observer, and the resolution to the song is simply the line, I'm going home. I'm out. That's it. End of story. There's nothing else going on. There's no transformation. There's no transcendence. That's my problem with the the lyric. Not that it's uh meaningless or trite which i don't think it is it's just there there just isn't any transformation also i don't feel this rec this song even belongs on the record honestly i it was a single it almost feels like a standalone uh it doesn't feel strong for me um let me say one thing good about it okay All right. <laughs> again again edge i mean edge is a marvel i mean it, his soloing is great here another tune where he's doing all he can to add textures and color this song somehow to lift it up despite its shortcomings but at some point it feels like he's trying too hard to give you something dazzling to make up for the lack of the songwriting that's me <laughs> tell me how you feel bill <laughs> well <laughs> all right well i think we have uh, uh put out the fire that's yeah so let's move on well this is one that i think we will agree on um it's a little ditty called tomorrow won't you come back tomorrow? Won't you come back tomorrow? Won't you come back tomorrow? Good night, sleep tonight. Outside, somebody's outside. Somebody's not killed. Okay, so this is the first song on October that really reached me. Um, and to this day, I'd put it in my personal top five U2 song. Um, it's definitely Bono's greatest vocal up to this point, And overall, the one on which he's digging down deepest and releasing some real authentic raw pain. Um, musically, it charts new territory for the band while acknowledging some of their Irish roots with the use of the Eulian pipe. Um, I love the pro, uh, the slow progression from the starkness and stillness of the first verse to a hint of momentum on each break between the verses, um, at which point you can almost picture a jig of sorrow being danced, asking for healing. 
then back to a verse, and then another break and another dance for healing until that great moment. Because I want you. I really want. I want you. Want you to be back tomorrow. You know, and then there's this release and exaltation. course you do need to talk about the subject matter here um i think bono has said when he first was writing the song that he thought he was writing it about northern ireland and the troubles and then he only realized after the fact that it was about his mother's funeral which i know you you don't think that's true bill um (laughs) but but regardless it is about his his mother's funeral um it's it's quite a naked and uh, a beautiful channeling of pain and fear of loss. Um, you know, but in addition to that, I think that it's about Bono's search for his mother through God. Um, and I don't want to become too much of a an armchair psychologist, and I don't really want to get into somebody else's personal reasons for finding a faith, but I think that there is a nexus there between those two things that certainly appear in the lyrics. Yeah. Um, you know, but there are so many religious images that are present in other songs that are all congregated in this one. Um, the blind that are made to see through a brick through a window and with a shout, the sleep and wakefulness um, through a brick through a window and rejoice, the closed and open doors and Gloria. Um, and I have to say the religious imagery about the healing process of opening doors is is particularly beautiful in this song. So the lyrics, who broke the window, who broke down the door, who tore the curtain, and who was he for, who healed the wounds, who healed the scars, open the door, open the door. Um, I I mean, I'll let folks look up the Bible verses themselves, (laughs) Um, but the torn curtain here, it's signifying a removal of a barrier between God and believers, um, the barrier of uh, between this world and the spiritual. Who broke the window? Who broke down the door? Who tore the curtain? And who was he for? Who healed the wounds? Who heals the scars? Open the door, open the door. Yeah, and Listen, I, as a non-Christian-ish sort, um, it's kind of startling and uncomfortable to hear, you know, later, you know, literally says, open up to the Lamb of God, Jesus coming. I mean, there's not much hidden there. Um, And yet the conviction, it's so authentic, the, um, the digging down, as I said, to release the 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 hidden pain is is such a, a an authentic moment of catharsis um and it's one of these moments we've been talking about like on another time of the place in gloria where he's overtaken he's enraptured it doesn't feel mannered or proselytizing to any degree it's it's a it's an authentic sharing of something that's troubling and he's looking for 
for comfort um, mm-hmm. and, and to be reunited with his mother. Right, right. And, you know, kind of moving away um, a little bit from the lyrics specifically of this song, I think that you really need to say that what happens here to the band on the October album and particularly in Bono with not having these songs together and ready for um, when they record it, it really pushes him particularly to a place where he has to create on the mic, um, which unlocks its own door between consciousness and unconsciousness. And it allows him to access these places in the create creative act, um, almost a mystical place of creation. Um, I think that the process becomes more fully pronounced perhaps on the unforgettable fire with songs like bad um, Elvis Presley in America, but it starts here in October. Um, and it's also October, I think, is the beginning of you two using the recording studio as a piece of their songwriting process, which is something that certainly continues through to throughout their whole career. Right. It never you know. stops. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, to varying degrees of success. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> um, I might also add there's a great reimagined version done for the Common Ground Project mm-hmm. that also appears on the October Deluxe release uh, by. Bono and Adam in particular, and it's really different and it's truly great. I love it. I agree with that. Won't you be back tomorrow? Will you be back? Um, all right. So I think we're in agreement on tomorrow. And I think so. so well, I think so. I think so true? too. Okay, yeah. good. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So let's let's move on to the title track. October. October, um, you know, it, it's quiet, it's simple, it's haunting, um, beautiful, beautiful piano line. Um, it's almost an instrumental. Um, when the lyric comes in, it feels meditative. Um, the themes to me have always been, it's the coming of winter, stripping away of illusion, maybe a youthful innocence. Um, and again, in lyrically, faith is the only hope in a barren landscape. Yeah, I agree with all of that. And I, I I wanted to read another little bit from Bono's book. Um, he called the song an early example of Edge playing a beautiful array of notes on the piano that sounded like nothing I've ever heard before. The ache of his loneliness, his longing to belong. The song became a meditation on a location for impermanence and faith. Hmm. And I, it just really, it blew me away when I first heard it. And I agree, hearing it set off something I'd never heard before. I mean, Edge truly has depths we can't even fathom. Yeah. Um, just an evocative, majestic piece. Agreed. But I did want to add one more thing. It's really a shame 
U2 does not include more of these magical little pieces like this and Scarlet and the ocean. In fact, it pretty much ended after Unforgettable Fire um, was, you know, like MLK or something like that. Um, I really miss the fact that they used to understand the value on these early records of showing a different side to the band um, that kind of like these little fragmentary pieces of songwriting is sometimes better than pumping out 12 highly crafted tunes that all sound like they could be, you know, singles. And this is something, Melody, we can add to our growing list of what you two could do to loosen up and take care of their legacy a little better. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> Where are we going now? Uh, I think we are going to talk about With a Shout. Let's give a listen. All right. with a shout melody respectfully this for me is definitely in the running for one of the worst youtube tracks for me certainly in the 80s um wow yeah uh musically it's manic larry sounds like some sort of precocious child left to beat on some tin biscuit trays in a fit of rage um musically it kind of sounds like a band wanting to sound like youtube but only getting the most extreme and obvious elements bono's voice oh, it's practically foaming here it's hard for me um lyrically unlike gloria which works in ways outside of a christian message and rejoice which offers answers for me here we don't get a sense of why bono feels so strongly and so certain and that just doesn't leave any room for interpretation. So for me, it feels exclusionary. Um, I appreciate, appreciate the conviction, the authenticity. I do believe him, but at least on October, Bono's yet to learn how to use scripture for any kind of relatable universal appeal beyond believers. That's just me. Well, um, I, I guess what I would say to that is the song is a hymn. I, I think that that really is what it is. Um, it's a song of praise, of exuberance. Um, and, you know, one of the things about this, and I, I think you kind of have to talk about this, U2 is very early in their career. Everything is on the line for them. Um, and I think it was incredibly brave of them to be this forthcoming about faith. And then to go ahead and release this song, which I am sure um, that they knew um, that would be, it would be eviscerated by the English press, right? It's the diametric opposite of cool. There's nothing cool about this song. Um, it is a song of glory to the God, you know? Um, there's so much Christian imagery here. There's shouting to the Lord, um, which is all over the book of Psalms. Um, I mean, you know, there's imagery of the crucifixion of Christ, the return of Christ, going to the foot of Mount Zion, um, it's just, it's not your typical pop song stuff. Um, even though I do think the song has a pop sensibility, which clearly you, you, you don't. Um, but yeah, my, my, my takeaway of this song is, man, that was brave to do that. It really well, was. Like I said, I, I, I 
recognize the authenticity and the conviction. You're right. It was brave. It it speaks to a part of you two that I responded to, which is they seem to thrive on the fact that they are uncool. And I do love that. This is just a song that there's a point I'm just like, enough. It's <laughs> it's it's a lot. <laughs> it is a lot. And I think that that <clears throat> is one of the reasons that I do like this song. It is yeah, a and that's, lot. And that's why I'm doing this podcast with you, Melody. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, 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 I appreciate it. Um, you got anything else? I don't. I don't on this one. Okay. We're well, just going to agree to disagree on this one. You move got Move on by. All right. Well, we're going to move on to one, which I think one of the more interesting tracks, one of my favorites, Stranger in a Strange Land. Let's give a listen. Stranger in a Strange Land. Um, Bill, I think this one we probably agree on. Um, you know, I think we both wish they had had more time to work on this one uh, because the song really does feel like a sketch um, that possibly could have become something more special. Right. Um, having said that, though, I do think that this is an interesting musical piece from the band. To me, it almost feels like um, it could be a part of a, a film score. Right. And, you know, I have to say, this is a great bass line from Adam. So props to Adam. This is a really, really cool bass line. Concur. Um, you know, so if, if we're talking about what Bono says that the lyric is about, I think you have to kind of talk about that. He says that it is about the band being in East Germany um, and meeting a soldier at the Berlin Wall. Of course, this is during the Cold War. And I think mm -hmm. it's an interesting slice of the moment story about division um but right. i know that you have a really interesting take on the lyrics that i want you to share yeah i don't know if it's right or not but um you know just obviously the the lyrics do speak of a feeling of disconnection and divide um and i don't know whether intentionally or not i wonder if this was actually the first u2 song that references the troubles uh that line he looked like you from across the street but that's a long way here also love the way he sings it. Um, but maybe that alludes to British occupation in Belfast, where the band also played on the boy tour. Um, and this idea of how a short distance can represent a wider divide, whether it be Berlin or Belfast. Thing I wanted to talk about about the lyrics um, is I've always found the allusion to the letter um, towards the end of the song um, and the I wish you were here lyrics um, really interesting. I mean, I, I think you can you can make guesses about who the letter is written to, but I don't think that 
really matters. I think what matters here is that's really the invitation for the listener to come into the story, which I think is quite well done. such a relatable universal offering i yeah. wish you were here it sounds overly simplistic but that's exactly what people latch on to right um, for sure and, and and i i i know that it was one that i did and you know i used to drive around with my first girlfriend she she loved that song and she's the one who would always play that song i would hear her sing it it was i mean such a vivid memory um mm. yeah Speaking of lines, another line I love, and we touched on it on the boy episode, um, the band really did crash on fans' floors. So I love that Mm -hmm. line. I really don't mind sleeping on the floor, but I couldn't sleep after what I saw, Um, you know, because they really did not have the money always for a hotel. Um, And because they subscribed to the punk rock ethos of connecting with fans, taking them up on a bit of kindness, um, creating a community, that that strong band fan um bond and mm-hmm. something i can certainly attest to during my time on the road um that's a special um little part of the song that i that i really love yeah yeah for sure and i think it's really a great vocal too um like i said I another, another one like i fall down that he's using his lower register um and as we we talked before like our, our barometer if you take how they were on the national stadium gig in february 1980 just over about a year and a half before this is recorded. I mean, this is a totally different singer altogether. Yeah, he's, yeah. Because he's not he, all the way there, right. but he's getting there. He's definitely getting there because yeah. what you're talking about earlier in the career, I mean, he almost sounds like a cartoon character. Absolutely. You know? <laughs> um, and he's also yeah. becoming himself. Right. His he, he is getting a voice, not just a singing voice, a persona that is his own. And it's starting absolutely. to come here, particularly on tracks like this. Agreed. All right, Melody, where are we going to now? So now we're going to be talking about Scarlet. So this is definitely one of my favorite tracks. Takes me to a time and place. Um, Adam does another fine Peter Hook impression on the heels of the ocean. Um, Edge adds beautiful, majestic piano uh, to his chiming guitar. And Larry, great ponderous tribal drums. Yep, and he's playing the toms on this part. It's not Edge. It's Larry. Atta boy, Larry. <laughs> no, you could do it. Um, and Steve Lillywhite reads it perfectly and adds just the right amount of atmosphere. This is an egalitarian effort here from everyone. Yeah. And, you, you know, the song, of course, it's almost an instrumental. Um, and even the vocal has the quality of an instrument to it. Um, I think it sort of becomes a type of a, a chant where the sound of the word, the way that it's sung becomes its meaning. I guess, sort of a loose interpretation of automatopoeia. Um, And in listening to this song, 
um, it makes me really think that Bono is making, starting to make very smart choices as a singer about the words that he sings. He's gravitating to these beautiful words such as Gloria, Rejoice, Jerusalem, October, Tomorrow, these very, very long vowel sounds that suit his singing exquisitely. Hmm. Um, so really coming into his own as a singer in that way. Nice. Um, yeah, and, and you know, some say that, oh, you know, he, he's not finishing the job with the lyrics. I mean, honestly, you don't need another word than rejoice. <laughs> no, <laughs> I think I anything think so. more anything more would be superfluous. This, right. This song really is perfection for me. to the the concluding track is that all is that all Personally, I think this is the weakest song on the album. Um, the song started its life as um, as the cry, um, which uh, first started being played around the boy period, um, and makes its uh, its way back after the October album, which is understandable um, because I just feel like this song just completely runs out of steam. I mean, it's not particularly special. Uh, yeah, wasn't great. What about you, Bill? <laughs> I, honestly, I mean, it's often cited as the worst used to song ever. You know, I don't know. There's a couple others that bother me. Uh, I won't mention them again here in Upset <laughs> Melody. Uh, it's not, but hey, but it's not as bad as Get On Your Boots. So there's that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I guess if I had to give this song any love, um, you know, I, I, I guess it works as a closing statement, uh, you know, but that's that's a stretch. That's a lot of love that I'm giving them. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, again, it, it's it's the band jamming away, and they do generate some excitement. But uh, I mean, again, another half baked effort. Um, you know, I remember the the, the engineer for Steve Lillywhite's Paul Morley said there was a sense, particularly in Bono, who pushed all these sessions, that there was a sense of just like, hey, it'll work out. It's us. You know, <laughs> so it's a little bit of that hubris. And this is an instance where they just didn't do the work, the yeah. work. They didn't get in the trenches and finish the job. And it's it's unfortunate on a record, even that I've been critical of. It's a record that means a lot to me. It's a bummer. It ends on kind of this note, not a great finish. Agreed. Agreed. And it, it is it is a very sad thing. But hey. So let me ask you, was this song ever played live in in this version? No, no, they okay. never. I think they just wanted to forget it. Yeah, it's because it goes right back to the cry after this. Yeah. So, 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 Melody, I do have a final tally. I, we agreed on six um, together. Agreed mm -hmm. on six. 
we had three split votes <laughs> and two we agreed were meh. Okay. Well, it's not so bad. Not so bad, right? Yeah. It's, it's better than I thought it was going to be. I thought we might be in fisticuffs by the end of this. Oh, exactly. They were not. Yeah. Well, I, I held myself back a little bit. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't want you to, to get too mean with me because. <laughs> I would just preach at you anyway. Read exactly. you some Bible verses. All right. So we've covered October. So, Bill, what's your takeaway on the album? Look, October is a record that means a lot to me personally. A record that still thrills me. Uh, songs like Tomorrow, October, Scarlet, Stranger in a Strange Land. These represent my very favorite side of the band. And I also think War, Unforgettable Fire, and even Joshua Tree would not be the records they were without the emotional kind of uh, upheaval the band and particularly Bono put himself through on October. As for the lyrics, my problem isn't that they're Christian, but I guess for me, songs work on a case-by-case basis on October. Gloria, Rejoice, and Tomorrow are very Christian, and I'm just as moved as you by the same reasons as you. But um, for I Threw a Brick, Fire, and With a Shout, I mean, for me, they encroach on a kind of didactic level, and I don't feel drawn in. In fact, I feel, to an extent, left out. And yet, I wanted to tell you, Melody, listening to you share what you, you know, what moved you on those songs, I was really taken and was reminded once again of the magic of how and why we all respond to music. And also why, frankly, why I value our friendship and why we're doing this podcast together. And I guess it comes down to the fact that there's just not enough room for interpretation at points on this record something to hold on to for someone like me who doesn't necessarily subscribe to this. And while Bono's not proselytizing, unlike, say, uh, Pete Townsend, Van Morrison, uh, Patti Smith, or even Sinead O'Connor, who really give you uh, a look into the struggle um, to overcome their own fallacies, um, to, to, to find a kind of transcendence. Bono doesn't share enough on a personal level or the reason why anyone that age could be that certain of the message he's conveying, at least for my taste level. Well, you know, I appreciate everything you just said, first of all. Um, And I certainly agree with you that uh, to a certain point, uh, the love of music is all a matter of taste, but, you know, indulge me. I'd like to look at this Christianness from another angle. I've been referring to this album as brave. Well, it only needed to be brave because it was a rock and roll album. Had YouTube been an R&B or country band, this Christian stuff just wouldn't have been a big deal. I agree uh, with that. Yeah. And I, I think believers and non-believers alike are more conditioned to accept religious music from other genres and can find their way into those songs. I mean, look, there have been so many artists, you know, Johnny Cash, Aretha, Al Green, Nina Simone, Beyonce, I could go on and on, who have performed songs of faithful adoration. And yet folks who are deep believers and those who are not have been touched by that work. So, you know, am I saying that October is at the caliber of some of the songs of faith done by the artists I just mentioned? No. But I do think the youthful desire to express this obviously deeply held faith in spite of knowing that it might kill your career, 
is remarkable. Particularly in regards to Bono, I see this as a young artist digging deep, maybe to an, a subconscious level, to show his impression of the beauty that lies in the belief of in God and in surrendering to God. And I do find this extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm a defender of Bono. I mean, he gets way too much criticism for too many petty things. And you could probably add this to the growing list of things the haters just can't get over about this guy. <laughs> but to be fair, he doesn't make it easy on himself sometimes, right? I mean, let's be honest. The notion of a 20-year-old anointing himself is kind of like a King David to write modernist psalms. Uh, I mean, can you spell messianic complex? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> what's the St. Francis of Assisi's quote? Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Hmm. Um, one other thing I wanted to share, you know, for a band that was so headstrong and so single-minded about making this record a declaration of faith, be damned the consequences, right? It's hard for me to reconcile they capitulated to Island's demands when it was obvious they needed more time to develop, you know, some really special ideas uh, that just didn't come together. And as a result, ultimately, at least for me, they didn't deliver on the promise of boy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, while I do think there are a lot of beautiful sonic moments on this album, I do agree with you that it had the band had more time to prepare. The lyrics and the music would have been less fragmented and more refined. But however, had that happened, you know, I think that the rawness and the nakedness of expression of faith may have been diminished as well. As it stands, though, releasing this album into the world, in spite of the consequences of its Christianness, its uncoolness, its out-of-stepness with rock and roll, I'll say it again, it's incredibly brave and inspiring. All right, Melody, now, the bottom line is you two, you know, they had the last lap. I mean, this record shot to number one, people were all over it. And, you know, remember that Remember that famous show? Bono's on stage. He says, take that, bitches. Deuces. I mean, that was awesome. <laughs> I would have paid money to see that show, but that's not exactly what happened. What? No? Um, no, 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 no. The, the reviews for October were pretty mixed. Oh. I'm very mixed. Um, and the album doesn't do very well. It, it fails to crack the top 100 in the States. Um, which was a pretty significant drop after Boy, which I think that the highest chart level of Boy was at 63. Um, I mean, the album does retire in the UK. It, it got to number 11, but it it um, it doesn't it doesn't stay there for very long, you know? Right. And now the truth is Island Records was about to drop U2 in the spring of 82 because, you know, lackluster sales, lukewarm reception from commercial radio, um, U2 is in the hold for something like 400,000 some odd pounds. And, you know, they just didn't believe they would ever recoup it. And if it wasn't for Chris Blackwell himself intervening, they definitely would have been dropped. Right, right. Um, but the October tour does launch, appropriately enough, in October, uh, making its way through Europe and then the States, playing bigger theaters than on Boy, and then back for a couple of shows in London, and then the band breaks for Christmas. Right. And there's gigs booked through um, the first half of 1982, but with pressure mounting from Shalom and from within, Edge feels he can't live with the contradiction of being in a rock and roll band, finding a global audience, and shall we say the humbler calling to serve a local community. 
and he decides he can't carry on. Yeah. And, you know, if you're trying to keep track of when this event happens, um, there are differing accounts of exactly when it did. Some say it occurred before the album is released. Others say it it happens before the second leg of the tour um, uh, in the States. And then others say that it happened at the end of the tour. So nobody really knows for sure when this occurs. True, true. Um, in any case, Edge tells Bono he's out. Um, disappointed, but understanding, Bono, Larry, and even Adam choose solidarity. So they go to Paul McGinnis and inform him, hey, um, we're unable to continue with this thing called U2. Right. Now, famously, McGinnis asked them, you know, what kind of God would have you break a, a binding contract to go on tour? Uh, what kind of God would have you break the law? And ultimately, his appeal to their ethics wins out, and mm -hmm. they agree to fulfill their commitments and then decide what to do. Very true. But before they go back on the road, um, they record and release a celebration, which has sim which it has similar lyrics to October, but sonically is much more aligned to the urgency of war. Uh, the song doesn't do anything commercially, but again, the video does get a lot of play on MTV. I mean, I had the import single. I know you did. I did. I love that song. Me too. Um, let's listen to it. Shut up! Okay, so they head back out on tour in early 82, but Island won't commit more tour support. And Paul McGinnis is forced to use his credit card to finance the tour until their booker, Frank Barcelona, one of the unsung heroes of the early U2 uh, story, gets them a spot opening for Jay Giles, who at the time have a number one hit with a song called Centerfold. Melody, you must remember this song. All right. Um, so they jump on for a 14-date spring tour in arenas, which goes surprisingly mm. well. Um, their own fans show up in droves, and they win over the Jake Isles fans and get encores on most of the dates. Um, you know, they go on and do some uh, summer festivals to great success, but October never climbs back up the charts. So they come home. And by now, Larry has told Shalom to bugger off. Bono has also quietly backed away from Shalom. Um, but Edge is the lone holdout. Meanwhile, um, Bono gets married to Allie and offers an olive branch to Adam and asks him to be his best man. A very gregarious and wise move to bring some peace after alienating Adam for the last year plus. Right. And while Bono is on his honeymoon and the others take a holiday, Edge bunkers down, still wrestling with whether he wants to remain in the band and wrestling with the question of how the band can be instruments of peace in a world at war with itself. Until one day, he sits down and starts to write a song called Sunday, Bloody Sunday. Right. And that's where we'll leave things until next time when we take on a record called War here on Into the Heart of YouTube podcast. Mm -hmm.